HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Fairway Market. Whether you are cooking for one or for a crowd, Fairway Market literally has everything you need for a fantastic meal. But if you don't feel like cooking, no worries. They cater. Check out fairwaymarket.com for more information. And be sure to check the new blog, On Our Plate, for weekly specials, health tips, and recipes. Welcome to the food scene. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Jim Peterson of jimcooks.com, um, also known as James Peterson, lauded cookbook author of over a dozen, 14 books now? 15, actually. 15. Mm-hmm. Are you counting the re-release of vegetables? No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to let you cheat on no, your No, I know. Yeah. No, I'm not counting that one. Yeah. And w- what's your most recent one out? The most recent one is um, Kitchen Simple. Yeah. And that was about what? That was about cooking like everybody, you know, writes a book about 30-minute meals. Yeah. I had to write mine. Yeah. <laughs> so it is. It is that. It's, it's, it's stuff that's not incredibly original, although some of it is. Yeah. But there's stuff in there like um, creme brulee, but I do a touch where I put um, berries on top. Yeah. I serve it. A big one. I make one big one. I yeah. cover it with raspberries when it's all done. And then I serve it at the table by scooping it out. So it's dramatic. Yeah. But it's still simple. Yeah. It's just as simple as making the plain one. Yeah. But it's for sharing and uh, let's call it 29-minute meals. Undercut all those 30-minute meals right, by one right. minute. Right, that right. That's a good idea. Yeah. I wish I had known that. <laughs> Thought of that. U.S. efficiency. <laughs> Beat all the other yeah. books out. <laughs> but, uh, um, I mean, cooking simply harkens back to your days of growing up. Uh, you grew up in Northern California, which was yes. kind of a bastion for, uh, well, obviously, NorCal cuisine. What was happening when you grew up in that area? Well, when I grew up, it was dead. It was pretty dead. Yeah. 
Um, San Francisco is always well known for its restaurants. So we used to occasionally go to San Francisco to Fisherman's Wharf for restaurants. But by our standards now, those restaurants weren't really innovative. Yeah. They, they hadn't caught up on the Alice Waters thing yet. Yeah, but I mean, you must have been surrounded by amazing produce and uh, markets. And w- was your home chock full of the food that you see at Grand Army Plaza and cook now? No, it wasn't. My mother used mostly frozen vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> and now that she's dead, I can talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> but you had to be hushed for a while. She got very, oh, yes. Yeah. I heard her feelings once. Yeah. I wrote an article in Gourmet Magazine. And it was about, and I was describing how in my cooking classes, there are those who grew up with an ethnic cuisine, yeah, usually Jewish or Italian or Polish or something, where they have a real context for cooking. yeah. And then there are the rest of us who grew up eating Cheerios and that kind of stuff. And I just said I was among the latter group. Well, that didn't fly at all. <laughs> what she she said, "What's next, mommy dearest?" Yeah. <laughs> so, from frozen vegetables to uh, um, what? What was the transition to cuisine? I mean, you grew up in North California, surrounded by it, but you didn't experience it there. I didn't discover it till I went to France in 1975. I worked my way around the world. I went from uh, San Francisco to Japan, and then I worked my way west. From Asia to From Europe. Asia to Europe, yeah. which was unusual, but most people went the other direction. Yeah. But I went that way and ended up in Paris, and that's what just blew my mind. Yeah. Why did you go to Asia and work your way to Europe? Because you didn't originally go to school for cooking. You were, what? Uh, I was the chemistry major at yeah. Berkeley. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I decided to go around the world. Well, I wanted to find a guru in India. Yeah. That was part of the plan, which didn't work <laughs> out. It was interesting, it's paradoxical, or it's ironic that I was looking for some direction in my life and found it in a way that was completely unexpected, which was cuisine. Yeah. And it was in Paris. It wasn't in India. Yeah. So when you arrived to Paris, I mean, did you take trains? Were you by foot? I hitchhiked. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. That must have been an experience in it of itself. That was that was something. The interesting thing about hitchhiking in Europe or in France, especially, is that a whole different type of driver would pick you up. Yeah. In this country, it was hippies and long-haired guys. There, it was mostly women. Yeah. Women, people with families, all unexpected people, and and it was always the best. The best people were always older people because we could talk cuisine. Yeah. And my French was so bad, that's all I could talk about anyway. But um, no, there was a real, it was a real interesting experience, hitchhiking. Oh, cool. So what was the common cuisine that you could talk about? What were the dishes or foods that you were eating on the road? Well, I would stop and eat, uh, I'm trying to think what I remember eating. It was interesting because I would hitchhike to these great restaurants. Yeah. There, were, you know, there was Ferdinand Poin, there was Bocuse and those places, and I would hitchhike or sometimes take the train to those places. Yeah. I mean, would you specifically say, hey, I want to go to Ferdinand uh, Poin's place, I want to go to Bocuse's place? Yeah. Because I'm assuming these, well, Michelin was based on people driving around, so mm-hmm. they probably knew the directions already. Yeah. yeah. So I, um, I would hitchhike or, as I say, occasionally take the train, and but on the way, I would stay. I would go to lesser places to eat, and that in a way was more interesting because it gave me more of a sense of what people were really eating there. Yeah, 
Um, so I'd have things like crudités. That was a totally enlightening <laughs> thing yeah. to have salads, an assortment of salads based on single vegetables. Yeah. Which was, what was mind-blowing to me. Yeah. It was wonderfully delicious and nutritious. Yeah. And then things like civet de lapin or civet de lièvre, you know, uh, hair stew. Yeah. Or things like that that are harder and harder to find. Yeah. But uh, real country cooking. Yeah. So you, you get to Paris. Or actually, you worked in southern France at a point, too, picking grapes. Yes. Yeah. At that at one point in 1975, I arrived in Paris. I had no money. Yeah. Didn't want to go back to the United States yet. So I got a job uh, cooking, not cooking, uh, picking grapes with his family near Carcassonne. Yeah. And that was enlightening because the, the mother would make us these fabulous lunches. Yeah. And they were really fabulous. I mean, we'd have pâtés and cheeses and, of course, the main course and something like, it would be something like tuna. Yeah. Which in those days, people didn't eat tuna in this country unless it came out of a can. We forget. Yeah. You're younger than I am, but I remember the 70s in America. And yeah. It was a desert. Yeah, I, I don't, I was born in the 80s. Yeah. But uh, you, you could have just said that you were a young soul. I mean, no, we're on radio, no one can actually see your, uh... Oh my, a gray hair! <laughs> I was going to say tweed jacket. Oh my, tweed jacket and my gray hair. Yeah. I don't fit in this environment yeah. at yeah. all. They looked at me funny coming in the place. You created this environment for them. Don't let them forget. So, oh right, yeah. right. <laughs> but so, not wanting to leave Paris, having to go down to the south and you know pick grapes. Did you return to Paris then, or did you come back? To the I went States? to Italy. Yeah. Then I went to Italy and spent I don't know a couple of months in Italy which was magnificent. And in fact, I've just been uh, transcribing my letters from back then. I saved all my letters that I had sent to my family. They saved them, and I'm transcribing them. And I just was at the part where we were in Italy. I was in Italy. And the thing that struck me is how cheap things were. Yeah. I'd have pizza for a dollar or or a bottle of wine for $2, a Chianti, a real Chianti. Yeah. Things were very cheap relative to what they are now. So uh, did you... Stay in Italy for a while. Did you try to travel more around Europe? Or After ha- Italy, I went to Switzerland to see a friend, and then I went back to France. Yeah, yeah. And so, worked, then I was pretty much done. It was November. It was turning cold, and I, and I came back to the United States. Yeah. So with all that new, fa- you know, magnificent and fantastic uh, new outlook, knowledge, tastes in Europe, you come back to the U.S. and uh, become a short-order cook of all things. Uh, where were you working, and why that position in the kitchen? Well, I got a job washing dishes. Yeah. That was all I was qualified to do. I didn't have any qualifications. So I got the job washing dishes, and then I said, you know, I can cook. Yeah. I couldn't, but I said I could, <laughs> and I could figure it out. And I discovered that I was good at working in a kitchen, a restaurant kitchen environment. Where yeah. There's that requirement for speed. I was good at that. Yeah. So eventually, I used those skills combined with finer cuisine, and those skills paid off. They so, were really helpful. So you had the speed, dexterity, and then eventually went into the technique. Eventually, I learned better cooking. Yeah, yeah. But when I returned, I thought I have to learn. To, I had I was inspired. Yeah, and I discovered this is what I want to do for my life's my. This is my passion. Awesome. So gaining some of that, you know, uh, insight and ability, uh, you end up going back to France. Yes, I, I saved this short order to cook money. It's amazing because in those days, 
the, the salaries, money, you could make enough doing a job like that. And if you were really, really careful and pinched your pennies, you could actually save money yeah. to do what I did, which was to go back to Paris the year, the following year. Yeah. And I went to see Richard Olney. Yeah. Because I had read, Alice had told me about his Simple French Food, the book. Yeah. I, well, first of all, who's Alice? And Alice Water, I'm sorry. A good person to know. And. Uh, mm-hmm. How did you get in touch with Richard Olney, who, who's on French cooking, is absurdly amazing. Well, I found out about him again through Jeremiah and Alice, Jeremiah Towers yeah. and Alice, and because they were reading his book, and it was impossible to get out of the library because they kept it was out of print. Yeah, and I finally got my hands on it, and I remember coming home on the bus, the Muni bus in San Francisco. And reading it and not putting it down till four that morning. Yeah. It was like a novel. Yeah. It was so exciting. His take on food and his sense of creativity and improvisation, all based on traditional French food. Yeah. So I thought, I've got to get, meet this guy. So when I went to Paris that summer, I think it was summer of 76, I went and I hitchhiked to the south of France and I ended up. At the base of his hill, he, he lived on the top of a hill in this little little house, little shepherd's house, I think, originally. And I was walking up the hill, and I could hear the typewriter, so I knew I was in the right place. <laughs> and I get there, and he's seated in an arbor in front of his little, sh- little, little house. There's an arbor with grapes and all perfectly idyllic and everything. And he's stark naked. <laughs> and he stands up and he takes this little Speedo bathing suit that's hanging off the trill and he puts it on and he says, allow me to receive you. <laughs> so we, he made lunch for me. We had grilled a, a salad mesclin, which was the first time I ever had something like that. Yeah. I was blown away. And a grilled fish with some fennel and basic southern French cooking. It was magnificent. Yeah, just... So simple. So simple. So straightforward, but, you know, based in, in, in such steep tradition. I think what inspired me about all of this was wine. Yeah. It was really wine that, it was learning about wine that carried me into cuisine. My interest was initially more in wine than, than cooking. Yeah. Do you remember that gateway bottle, that one that transitioned you away from Carlo Rossi and the jug to... Oh, I remember the first Sauterne I ever tasted. Yeah. We, in those days, this was 19, you know, seven, whatever. You could buy a bottle of Sauterne for $3 because no one knew what it was. Yeah. So when I tasted that the first time, I was just, oh my gosh, this is Sauterne. I was used to this stuff in the jugs that my parents drank. And then the first time I ever had a German Mosul, say nothing of Burgundy's. Yeah. I was... And and then, well, I'm jumping ahead, but, but after I came back from France again, I became kind of the cook in the, my wine group. Yeah. So I would cook and we would drink these fantastic wines that now are inaccessible. You see them at Christie's for auction. <sighs> yeah. Like Le, Chateau Pichrus. I mean, we would drink that. Yeah. Were they VDPs at that point? I mean, were they accessible bottles without... Uh, designation is that why they were cheap? Or? Oh no, they were Appalachian yeah, Controles. Yeah. yeah, they just weren't well known. You yeah. could buy a bottle of Latosh for under a hundred dollars, wow. well under a hundred dollars. Yeah, see, S- yeah, it's, it's so out of reach now. Uh, do you think that actually is hurting uh, um, cuisine at a point? Being that, well, uh, ingredients too are expensive, but wine 
or specific wines that uh, you know cuisine was founded on. Uh, yes, I think you have a point. Yeah. I think it takes something away to have those wines inaccessible, those great burgundies. At least once in a while, people now, to have a moment shave from the Domaine de la Romanie Conti, people, yeah. that's unex- inaccessible. People yeah. aren't going to ever get to drink that. I got to drink it once. Yeah. And I was very fortunate, the wines I was able to drink in my life. I'm very grateful that I drank when I did. Awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, back in France, uh, mm-hmm. a man named George Blanc. Yes. Well, I asked Richard, where should I go to learn cooking? He said, well, I have two restaurants in, for you. One is Le Viverois in Paris. Yeah. And the other is, which was then Chez La Mer Blanc, which is Georges Blanc's restaurant. It used to be his mother's. It was one of those restaurants in Burgundy that are all the mayor something. Yeah. And they've been in the family for centuries. So it was one of those places. And I was hitchhiking there, and I met this young woman and we hitchhiked there together and I ended up having a meal there and I remember having a breast chicken that had been poached in cream and served with fresh tarragon. Well, now that sounds, well, it could never be prosaic because we can't get anything as good as a breast chicken here. But, yeah. But the idea is sort of simple. Yeah. But man, that it was like hearing a violin sonata or something and thinking, oh my gosh, yeah, this is re- revealing. This reveals a whole new world to me. Yeah. So did you work for George? I eventually ended up working. I worked yeah. at both those restaurants. Awesome. I, I hounded them yeah. <laughs> until they let me work there. Yeah. In those days, they had no program for stages. Now they have programs where you sign up and pay money, I think, yeah. to be a stage. Now you're just annoying to the point of them accepting you into their kitchen. I just begged them. I wrote letters and... The Vivois was crazy. What was it? Well, it was a three-star restaurant at the time. Yeah. And I think it was the most inspiring for me because the, the, the level of the ingredients was so high and the, the degree to which we did things at the last minute was so intense. We filleted fish to order. Yeah. We would clean chickens. In those days, you had to clean the chicken, pull the lungs and the heart and everything out. We would do that to order. So it was that, the cuisine was that, he was that much of a maniac. Yeah, so eliminating mise en place almost completely for... In a way. Of, yeah. The mise en place was t- were, were tubs of cream, Yeah, <laughs> big buckets of creme fraiche from Echelet, that really good from the Loire Valley, yeah. from that area, and um, butter, Yeah, which we used in huge amounts. Wonderfully copious. Oh. Yeah. It's a wonder everyone, anyone got out of there alive. But boy, was that food good. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to take a quick break and show that you actually made it back to the States in one piece. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here with Jim Peterson and a bucket of cream. <laughs> <laughs> so we were just in France. We're coming back to New York. Uh, this was during the 80s when you actually returned to, is it open up or just work at Le Petit Robert? Well, I, after living in France for those two years, came back to New York in 1979. Or I shouldn't say came back to New York. I never had lived in New yeah. York. I lived in California. But in those days, there were no restaurant opportunities in California, as hard as that is to imagine now. Yeah. There just weren't. There was Alice and that whole tribe. And if you weren't in with them, you were nowhere. It was completely Alice Waters sort of kingdom. Yeah. So I thought, well, I don't want to do that. I want to be independent and such. So I came to New York. I had a good friend here, so worked my got used to that. And then this man whom I had worked for in Paris opened a restaurant in the village and asked me to come in as a partner. So I ended up actually being a restaurant owner yeah. before ever really working around in the United States very much. Yeah. So that, I had that restaurant for four years. And that was located in the Greenwich Village where? It's where the Spotted Pig is. Oh, yeah. That's the space. Yeah. And what, what did you try to bring to the U.S. that you didn't think was here? French cooking that was authentic, <coughs> that wasn't just the rehash, Sol Veronique, and all the things that people had then that were just cliches and, and badly executed. And I wanted to take traditional French food and refine it, not alter it, not make it Japanese or anything like that, yeah. but just treat it like I would treat it if I were in a three-star restaurant. Yeah. Cook a rabbit as though I were in a three-star restaurant. So I tried to do that yeah. to make the food as, as good as possible. And you said tried, and it was open for four years to really amazing accolades and, and praise. Um, at what point did you step away from the stove and focus yourself on, on books? Well, the restaurant closed. We It was just a pile of things going wrong. My partner and I were each other's throats, and the health department was on us, and the, we ran out. Our lease ran out. So we decided to just close the shop. Yeah. And I was at loose ends. I didn't have any money or anything. I had to get a job. And the French Culinary Institute approached me and said, you know, here's the... F- Thing, five hours a day. I, well, this is good. And I enjoyed teaching. I discovered that because I was training staff at the restaurant. And I enjoyed that. So I started teaching at the French Culinary Institute. And that was that suited me well. Yeah. And you taught cooking. Cooking. Yeah. But after there, being there a couple years, I started to get bored again, which is the, <laughs> which is the big story of my life. I get <laughs> bored and then things have to change. But I was... They needed someone to write curriculum because the, the, it, they had modeled the school after a French school and there was no written curriculum for a lot of the courses. So, that, so for a year, I holed up in an office and writ, wrote curriculum. Yeah. And that's how I started writing. Yeah. And I also was translating books. I had been approached by a publisher to translate these pastry books from French into English. So that was my connection when they said, well, if you ever want to do your own book, let us know. And I went, ding. There it is. Because I'd always wanted to do a sauce book. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, classical French foundation technique. With modern sauces in yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, were, that were not written down anywhere at the time. Um, it came out in 91. What were those sauces that 
didn't exist in any other publication. Well, and everything that had been written up to then, the sauces did exist in other publications, yeah. but they weren't systematized. Yeah. Like, when I would encounter reduced creams, say a reduced cream sauce, those aren't very popular anymore because yeah. they were just kind of... Uh, uh, but when I would encounter that, I realized, well, this is analogous, if it's, say, based on broth, mm-hmm. this is analogous to a classic velouté. Yeah. So I just took classic cooking and said Nouvelle Cuisine is really just a slight tweaking of, of classic cooking. Or yeah. Not slight so much in the area of sauce making. But anyway, I try to put it in con- the sauces in context. Well, I mean, aside from context, you put them in flowcharts, which uh, I don't. Flowcharts, right? I, yeah, I don't, I don't think I had actually seen before in cookbooks. You know, because you always have these um, explanations. You always have, you know, have these things on hand and do these techniques. But to see some kind of visual, um, like moniker of how to break down classes of sauces and how to, you know, deviate. If you want to go this way, you can go this way. If you, I mean, just giving yourself permutations or options was kind of eye opening for me. Oh, good. Book. I'm yeah. glad those were helpful. Those charts. Yeah. And in 91, uh, the book itself, uh, again, to big acclaim, won a James Beard foundation award. Yeah. One cookbook of the year. I was blown away. Yeah. I didn't even know that award existed. Yeah. And I'm sitting there. I won the award for my category. I was thrilled, the publisher's thrilled, my agent's thrilled, everyone's thrilled. And then they announced with this final award, which is the cookbook of the year. I never, oh, really? Oh, okay. Well, some big name's going to win that. Yeah. I'm not going to win that. And there it was. It came up on the screen. And I just absolutely was mind-blown away. Yeah. And that changed, that really got me going. Because then I could get a book contract again for another book and keep going and one led to the other so so i mean uh, you base yourself on a lot of single subject books uh, fish and shellfish uh, there's the simply soups book um so you had a mode almost kind of how you uh, broke down your you know sauces you had a vision of where you wanted to go when did photography join itself in the cookbook. Oh, you're running through my whole life. This is good. Yeah. This is a rehash. Yeah. I'll write my memoirs it. after yeah. this. <laughs> so if anyone asks a question about, you know, so what have you done in your life? Just send them this I'll way. I'll send them yeah. the tape. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the photography came about, well, I guess 1993, 94, something like that. And I was just sitting up on my roof deck one afternoon, one morning, daydreaming and thinking, hmm... I had been on a shoot with Maria Robledo, who did the cover for my first edition of Sauces. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. Big old camera with a bellows and it looked little, all very intriguing. And yeah. the cape, a black <laughs> thing. It was the old fashioned way. So I just thought, well, and I started reading. And when I become monomaniacal about something, <laughs> which is the way I am about it, I take one thing at a time, yeah. and everything else I forget I, about. I was trying to be nice by saying single subject, but monomaniacal. Monomania yeah. <laughs> is more the word for it. And so I got in, started reading everything I could read, and I and I bought a four by five camera and started shooting Polaroids and four by five chromes, and just have kept at it. And it still challenges me. It's yeah. still very hard. Well, it was the fish and selfish book. Um, Looking to photograph step-by-step similar uh, or improve on Jacques Pepin's La Technique um, that you really wanted to start photographing. Now, how did you set yourself up? How did you mise yourself out for photography at that point? 
Well, I had an apartment that was big enough to, to handle it. And I worked, I actually rented a studio up in Massachusetts, of all places, which was kind of a stupid thing to do because we couldn't access the fish. I was driving back and forth. Yeah. But I had a friend up there who was a food stylist, so anyway, that, that one thing led to the other. But um, we did the how-to, tech, how-to pictures for that and then the beauty shots up there. And the how-tos, there just weren't how-tos about fish like. Maybe Jacques Pepin had some. Yeah. But, I mean, they were black and white. They were, they, they were systematic in a different way. You, you were bringing new light to They help. weren't sexy. Yeah. yeah. They were good. Yeah. He, I learned a lot from Jacques Pepin. <laughs> oh, yeah. In fact, when I was teaching at the French Culinary Institute, they'd wanted me to trust a chicken in that elaborate way with, all this, with, the, with the skewer, you know, and yeah, yeah. twist it back. I never can remember how to do it. But stuff like that, I quick look it up in Jacques Pepin. Yeah. So, cookbooks, cookbooks, cookbooks. You know, you've done 14 of them. You've won numerous awards from the Beard Foundation, uh, ISCP. We're here today uh, because you've actually just re-released one of your classics, Vegetables, which was published, what, 14 years ago? Yes, 14 years ago. Over 100,000 mm-hmm. copies sold. So Isn't what? that amazing? <laughs> it amazes me. Yeah, yeah. I mean... I, it doesn't amaze me, and, and this is why. Because I already have, you know, your first edition, now second edition of the cookbook. I have sauces. But there is something new about vegetables. There is some, you know, uh, renaissance about cooking with vegetables. But what was kind of amazing uh, to think about is all the new vegetables and all the new techniques and the introduction of ethnic cuisine. I mean, yes. th- there was such an expanse that, you know, you, you put into these volumes um, what were new vegetables? What were new techniques? What were new dishes that you introduced? Well, there were. It's hard to remember exactly the dishes, but there was a lot more Asian influence. Yeah, and I realized that the other one was very Eurocentric. Yeah, and my background—that's my background. It's still Eurocentric to a large degree, but less so. Yeah. So, in terms of new techniques, not a whole lot. What What I did do to the book that I think is a big improvement is I reorganized it. Yeah. I don't know if you rem- well you remember the old one how it was all kind of done by type of dish yeah and so if you wanted an artichoke you didn't know quite where to go yeah you had to look it up in the index and now the techniques and everything and the types of dishes are all up front yeah and then the the vegetables are by alphabetical order yeah do you, do you think that's a uh, partially because we cook so much more seasonally now in the U.S. That's largely part. Yeah. And the experience of photographing it was magnificent. Yeah. Because we started in March, and my assistant and I, we followed the season. We went to the green market twice a week yeah. at Union Square, and we followed the seasons until October. That's awesome. Yeah. So everything in there is right right out of the ground that day practically yeah so anyone that's doing a seasonal cookbook should really take a whole year to be able to go through the annual progression ideally yeah and my assistant later told me she said it was like a spiritual experience for her yeah it was this whole rebirth i don't know how she phrased it but it was important to her yeah so let's let's go from the spiritual to the technical the camera that you shoot with you're a Hasselblad man Mm-hmm. what kind of backs do you use what kind of a digital back? Yeah. One's a leaf, which is outdated now. It's only 18 megapixels, which is no big whoop. <laughs> but at the time when I bought it, that was huge. Yeah. And then an Imicon, which is uh, Hasselblad's own brand. Yeah. 
I just had it repaired for seventeen hundred dollars. <laughs> These things break. <sighs> Photography is so it's, expensive. It's expensive. I mean. Uh, your baking cookbook? How many rolls of films did you oh, shoot on that? <laughs> oh, now, well, that's we bracketed. Yeah, we bracketed. There were probably there were at least three shots per shot. Yeah. So, oh gee, thousands I don't know how. upon thousands. thousands. I mean, obviously there is an overhead in, in digital once you have the equipment, but acquiring it is that much more expensive than analog. Um, yes. Do you still shoot film? No, I yeah. haven't shot film in a while. Although I'm not, I have nothing against it, and yeah. I'd love to break out the four by five. Yeah, but uh, digital to to be able to see it on the screen, I hook it up to the computer, so I see it immediately on the big screen. Yeah, that's just so much easier. Yeah, and, and it lends to carelessness. When I look at the baking book, I think I had to anticipate there couldn't be a crumb, there couldn't be. The knife put in a weird position. It all had to be just right. Yeah. And now I just click and I look at the picture and I, oh, well, you got to move the knife. Yeah. I'm lazy. <laughs> er. Yeah. Lazier. Well, it's kind of like the difference between, you know, uh, mise en place and a la minute almost. Uh, a little bit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I'm definitely an a la minute type. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what's, what's your next uh, monomaniacal cookbook coming out? Well, I'm working on a couple of ideas. Yeah. Um, one is an idea about doneness, showing people when 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 food is done. <laughs> a friend of mine uh, always jokes about British cookbooks pretty much just end with and cook until done. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and and people say my editor pointed this out. She said people who don't know how to cook, they their stumbling block is I just don't know when it's done. Yeah. That's what people say. Do you feel like people undercook or overcook more often than not? Probably overcook. Yeah. Chicken and fish. Chicken is, they kill chicken. <laughs> chicken and turkey, birds. Yeah. Birds, they wreck. Yeah. So how do you tell? I mean, from uh, a visual standpoint. Well, that's the, that's the rub. Yeah. Because not all cues for doneness are visual. Yeah. So it has to be written and, and the descriptions have to be worked in when it, when it deals with smell or touch. Yeah. So a chicken, for example, well, a chicken is visual. Because I look at the juices yeah. that form in the cavity, and they go through three stages, and I can see when they're ready. Yeah. What are those three stages? It goes from cloudy to clear with streaks of red to clear. Yeah. And people always say, cook it till clear. Yeah. I say, cook it till clear with streaks of red. Yeah. Why? If you cook it till clear, it's overdone. Well, because of carryover heat or because of... I don't know. Yeah. And I, and I say to people also, and this is a mistake I've made, because when I cook a chicken, it's pink near where the thigh joint joins the breast, yeah. or the back. That area, it's not raw, but it's pink. And the only other person who cooks this way I've heard, that I've heard of is, um, oh, who's the famous Spago guy, uh, Wolfgang Puck. Yeah. He he does that too, but in any case, what were we talking about? I forget what we were. Doneness. We oh, doneness. Right. So anyway, I, I look at the at the juices. Yeah, interesting. Um, what are there? You know, uh, I mean, you you name poultry. I, fish is, you know, absurdly tough. Uh, Tricky. Yeah, for mm -hmm. for a lot of people. Yes. But vegetables. Are there any vegetables that people just cook way past the point? Oh uh, what. <laughs> My bête noire is not over vegetables, it's undercooking. Yeah. 
string beans. Yeah. I like a string bean to be cooked. Yeah. So there's that slightest perceptible crunch. Yeah. But barely perceptible. Yeah. And people, I eat their raw. It's like, chew, I got to chew these things. This is not how they're meant to be. Yeah. So I'm a little old fashioned about the cooking times on vegetables. Yeah. I think sometimes some vegetables benefit from long cooking. Yeah. It was funny. I went to uh, Sicily and we had a lot of green vegetables cooked affogato, like, uh, which means drunken. And many oh. people know, you know, mm-hmm. scoop ice cream, espresso on top. Uh, but these vegetables were cooked past the point of recognition, mm-hmm. um, almost like baby food or, or, or puree. Uh, they were delicious. They were absolutely, yes. but it, it, it really is a point of view kind of thing. Yes, yes. It's like, spin- no, what's the vegetable I went in about? There was a vegetable that, oh, broccoli. Yeah. People always just blanch it or, or steam it. Yeah. And it's just boring as can be. Yeah. But if you stew it a little bit with garlic yeah. and olive oil and maybe a little lemon at the end, yeah. you get much more aroma from it. Yeah. Much more perfume. And that is in your vegetables book? Yes. And that is a book that everyone should run out and get. Absolutely. First Immediately. <laughs> this second. We're, we're this timing second. you. <laughs> Jim, James, uh, Mr. Peterson, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, Michael, thank yeah. you so much for having me. Looking forward to the next uh, single subject cookbook. Great. And many more awards in the future. And now I'm going to go get a bucket of cream. <laughs> Excellent. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers.